0: Well, welcome back. Uh, let me refresh your memory in case uh, it's been too long since you've been here. We have been in the Book of Hebrews. Uh, it's called the Hall of Faith, and it gives us a group of men and women to look to as illustrations and examples of what does the life of faith look like. And we talked about uh, that great verse, faith is the evidence of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen, and talked about how the life of faith that Hebrews talks about is this ongoing life of faith in the Christian for the Christian in which we focus our eyes on the promises of God through Jesus Christ, and we don't take our eyes off of that. And so day by day, week by week, year by year, we follow him, trusting that there's a reward for following him that is greater than anything we leave behind in this world, anything that we would forfeit or sacrifice. So I I got to thinking about the concept of faith over the last couple of weeks after we talked about it, and we're going to finish this great chapter this week. But as I thought about faith, I was curious, how is the word faith used in our culture? What does our culture understand it to mean? And so uh, I looked up some different news articles from just the last week on the word faith and how it's used. Uh, here's one it says Nokia Corporation shows faith in smartphones. Right, the idea is that obviously Nokia believes that their telecom equipment and the way it sells will outlast this recession and some of the turmoil going on in the telecom industry. And so they've got faith in their smartphones. Another one, Senator Graham shows faith in nuclear power. And the article went on to talk about how despite what's happened in Japan, he has faith that nuclear power is still a viable source of energy. In other words, he trusts that we can use nuclear power, that it's still a trustworthy source of energy. Here's another one. Carmelo Anthony says, I have faith. Some of you will know who Carmelo Anthony is, but basketball star with the New York Knicks. And uh, what he was talking about was he had faith that his team would make the playoffs, He trusted them. Now, whether it's misplaced or not, uh, we'll let you decide. But uh, he was saying, I have faith in my team. Perhaps the most interesting one was this. 100-year-old skydiver takes ultimate leap of faith. Uh, It was a story about a man who went skydiving on his 100th birthday. Uh, He had been convinced by some friends to go when he turned 95. And they said, how was it? He said, okay. And they said, would you go again? He goes, I'll tell you what, if I'm still around when I'm 100, I'll go again. And uh, he said uh, he didn't think he would make it that far. But when he got to 100, they said, you got to keep your promise. So he jumped out of the plane and put faith, I suppose, in the parachute, in the airplane, in the man who was jumping with him in tandem, right? So this 100-year-old skydiver takes a leap of faith. So you see the word used all over the place in our culture in a variety of different contexts. Of course, the most common one, even as I looked at news articles, was in the context of religious faith talked about men and women, people of faith. And usually was talking about people who uh, attend church, people who adhere to a particular religion, whether it's Christianity or Islam or Buddhism. They would talk about people of faith. It's used all over the place. But in all of these usages, there is kind of a root meaning that you see. And that root meaning essentially means to trust someone or something that their promises are valid. Right, That they will do what they claim they will do or what they say they will do. So if I have faith in nuclear power, I have faith that it is going to be the source of energy that it promises, in a sense, to be. That it will be reliable, it will be clean, it will be inexpensive, and all of those good things. If I have faith in a parachute, I strap it on, I trust that I'm going to get to the ground alive, safe, in one piece, because that parachute, in a sense, has promised that to me. I exercise faith. And as we look throughout the Bible, we see the word faith used essentially that way, but it's used in a number of different contexts. So some examples in the Christian life. If I have faith in God's promise of eternal life in Jesus Christ, I believe then that God has promised that if I trust, if I exercise faith in the fact that Jesus has died for my sins, he has risen again, if I believe that is sufficient to provide me with eternal life, then I have eternal life. And I exercise faith. And hopefully then I live my life accordingly. I don't try to earn my salvation. I don't try to work my way to heaven. But I trust, I act and live according to the faith that I hold. We don't always do so, but hopefully we do. Hopefully there's consistency between our faith and our actions. If I have faith, as Romans 8 says, that all things work together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose, then when I'm going through tough circumstances... I exercise belief in God that his promise is true, that regardless of what I'm going through, when things are uncertain or difficult, God is going to work everything ultimately toward the good of his kingdom, toward his purposes. What that means is I don't panic. I don't try to have my own way in the world, but I trust God's way, knowing that he's got a plan that will work together ultimately for good, even if I don't see it. I trust that God's promises are true. And if you remember, we've consistently said the book of Hebrews was written to a group of Jewish men and women who had trusted in Jesus Christ, who were tempted in the face of persecution to walk away. And He says, no, do not walk away. Do not forfeit the reward that will come to those who are faithful. That when Jesus Christ returns and establishes his kingdom, there will be many who enter because they believed in Jesus Christ. But the reality is there will also be some who receive the opportunity To reign with Jesus Christ in a special way. There will be some who receive what Paul calls crowns that we throw at the feet of Jesus. There will be some who hear, well done, good and faithful servant, because they've invested their life in those things that matter. That is the book of Hebrews in a nutshell. Don't walk away, because there are consequences for doing so, but there are rewards for persevering. And that's where we've been going in Hebrews 11. And I don't know about you, but when I think about what I want my life to be known for, I want to leave a legacy behind of faith in God. I want to leave a legacy behind of men and women who pursue Jesus Christ because I invest in my time and my money and my energy in them so they can know God and follow him. That's what I want my legacy to be. And I look at men and women like, for example, Adoniram Judson, probably the very first truly American missionary who was willing to leave his home leave his family, leave his friends, his prestige, his comfort, the opportunity that he had to be a great man in the eyes of the world. And he left it and he said, I want to share the gospel in an obscure place on the other side of the world. And I look at men and women like that, men and women of faith like the great reformer Martin Luther, who said the truth of the gospel is worth more to me than my life, my freedom, my position. I say, I want to be a man like that. And what Hebrews 11 does is it gives us a long list of men and women who were faithful, not perfect by any means, but men and women who were faithful and valued the things of God and the treasures of God more than the things of men. And what he's going to show us is some ways in which we can approach our life with faithfulness so that at the end of our life we can look back and we say, you know, my legacy is not millions of dollars in the bank maybe. My legacy is not that people remember me for a song. My legacy is not that people remember me for a great personality, but they remember me if they remember me because I left a legacy of men and women behind who know Jesus Christ because I invested my life in the things of the kingdom. How can we do that? All right, let's look at Hebrews 11. First thing that we see is this, faith-filled people are not yet at home. Verse 13, All these died in faith without receiving the promises, but having seen them and having welcomed them from a distance and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For those who say such things make it clear that they are seeking a country of their own. And if indeed, if they had been thinking of that country from which they went out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. All right, he refers back to these patriarchs that he's talked about in the first half of the chapter, All right, Abraham, Sarah, Noah, Abel, Enoch. And what he says is something very significant, and that is, this. God had made them promises. Take Abraham, for example. When Abraham left his homeland of Ur, God says to him, Abraham, go to this land. I'll show you where it is. He doesn't even tell Abraham where he's going. Just Go. And I will bless you. I will make your name great. And I will make you a blessing. All right, what does Abraham do? He goes. And over the course of his life, God refines the promise. God promises him uh, thousands of descendants, millions of descendants, greater than the sand on the seashore and the stars in the heavens. And Abraham continues to follow God. But guess what? In his lifetime, Abraham never experiences the fulfillment of those promises. In fact, Before he even has a son who can be his heir, you know how old he is, 100 years old. And he waits most of his life to even see the beginning of those promises. And it's never fulfilled completely in his lifetime. But it says, you know what? Abraham recognizes that now he is not at home. Now he is not going to fully receive all of God's promises and he sets his eyes to the future and he says, there's coming a day in which God will fulfill the promises and so he continues to live and to act and to believe as if God will fulfill those promises and he doesn't go back to Ur or set up a tent in the wilderness and say, this is is it. I'm gonna gather a bunch of sheep and donkeys, get some chairs, get some sofas and this is it, man, I'm gonna make my life here. Instead, Abraham spends most of his life wandering around awaiting the fulfillment of God's promises because he believed that the future fulfillment of those promises and the home God had promised him and his people was greater than any home he could set up now. And the point is this, your home, my home, it's not here. You're gonna go home after this talk probably. You sit down on your sofa, maybe you'll study, maybe you'll turn on the television, you're going to kick back and you're going to relax and there's a certain attitude that we take when we get into our homes, one of rest and one of peace, that we don't take when we're elsewhere, right? If you come over to my house and I say, hey, make yourself at home, what do I mean? Well, sit down on the sofa, maybe kick off your shoes, you can go get some, uh, something to drink from the fridge, maybe a snack, watch TV. Now what do I not mean? I don't mean go try on my clothes. I don't mean you can use my toothbrush. You can sleep in my bed. There are certain ways that I act in my home and you act in your home that you don't act when you're not at home. I was reminded of a friend of mine who invited uh, some people to stay with him one weekend, some friends. And uh, before he went to bed, he said, you know, make yourself at home, uh, whatever you want to eat, that's fine. And so he went on to bed and he woke up in the morning and they were eating breakfast. And in that moment, he realized that they had eaten an entire box of his favorite cereal. And he, he, was, he was stunned. And, and in his mind, he thought, what did I say that made them think this behavior was okay? Oh, I told them make themselves at home. And there they are, they're at home. That wasn't his idea of make yourself at home. We act differently when we are in our home, perhaps, than someone else's home. And all this is saying is this, here is not our home. You can build a great big house here, the most comfortable house you'll ever have, that anybody will ever have, and it's not your home. You can settle in and you can have your circle of friends, you can have your healthy family, you can have everything that you're dreaming of right now as you walk through college, And you can invest all your resources and all your time and all your energy into building a place for yourself, only to realize you've invested in a home that is not eternal. And I think for some of us, we're so tempted to cling to the things of this earth and the homes of this earth because we don't continue to realize, like Abraham did, we're strangers here. We're foreigners here. A Christian, a believer in Jesus Christ, is not at home on his own soil and he's not at home on someone else's. He's at home in the kingdom that God is going to bring in Jesus Christ, the city that will one day come down from heaven, as Revelation 21 describes, and we will live in that city. And so what we do is we orient our minds and our hearts and our actions toward that home, and we invest in it. This past week, as I thought about this passage, I thought about some of our friends who came from this group who are overseas telling others about Jesus and unfamiliar cultures. And so I sent a few of them an email and I said, tell me a little bit about what you think of when you think of this concept of home. And as you read Hebrews 11, how does it speak to you? Because you left your home to go to an unfamiliar place to share Jesus with people who did not know you, people who do not relate to your culture, and you left your home to do that. How do you think about home? And here's just, I'm going to share a couple of these things that they wrote. One girl says this, I would say what motivated me to leave the comforts of home in America was to reach people with the gospel. It seemed like a small sacrifice to make in return for people hearing the truth. The reality that I would be living in another country did not cross my mind much. It was more difficult leaving people I loved. She says, ha ha, I was hit with the reality of being a stranger almost instantly. I couldn't speak the language. My blonde hair and light skin made me stick out tremendously. And day-to-day life was very different than the easiness and yumminess of my home. Being in this environment where I don't feel 100% comfortable every day reminds me that we are all strangers on this earth. We are waiting for that day when we will be where we were created to be, completely restored and in his presence. It doesn't matter if I'm driving my car in Texas or buying vegetables in a market in Africa, I'm still in this earthly body. I'm still waiting to be completely satisfied. I'm still not home. Another friend says this, according to scripture, I am an ambassador for Christ here on earth to be a reflection of Christ. So why not take time to reflect Christ in a place where not many people are? Yes, it's true that there are times of missing home in the States, missing friends and family, but I will see them again. We will be together for eternity in heaven. Spending time sharing with people who do not have the truth is worth it. Having more of an eternal perspective has allowed me to see that life now is not how it should be. And one day it will be. When we are resurrected and with Christ, then we will be home no matter where i live in texas or in a foreign land i am not where i will be for eternity this brings me comfort and perspective as i seek to live life fully where i am i think too often we think we deserve to live the comfortable life away from suffering or hardship but this is not what we are promised now men and women of faith realize you're not at home and no matter how good a home you can build here it will never satisfy like investing in the home that god will provide for those who are faithful. Secondly, faith-filled people trust God's promises in times of uncertainty. They trust God during uncertainty. Look at verses 17 to 22. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was offering up his only begotten son. It was he to whom it was said, in Isaac, your descendants shall be called. He considered that God is able to raise people even from the dead, from which he also received him back as a type. By faith, Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau, even regarding things to come. By faith, Jacob, as he was dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph and worshiped, leaning on the top of his staff. By faith, Joseph, when he was dying, made mention of the exodus of the sons of Israel and gave orders concerning his bones. All right, think about Abraham for just a second again. I mentioned he was 100 years old when he finally gets this son of promise. You know when God first gave the promise to Abraham? When he was 75 says, leave your home. I'm going to give you descendants. I'm going to bless you. 25 years, Abraham and Sarah wait. Abraham and Sarah experience barrenness, which isn't surprising for a man of 75 and a woman of 65. (laughs) Abraham and Sarah wait. And then when he's a hundred years old, he has this child. When the child is about probably 13, 14 years old, now Abraham is extremely old. And God says, all right, Abraham, take the son, go up to Mount Moriah and kill him. Can you imagine 40 years after this promise is made, Abraham's been waiting for it for a large portion of his life. He finally has this beloved son and God says, sacrifice him to me. It's unexpected, it seems crazy, and it places all kinds of uncertainty in Abraham's future. God, this is the child of promise. This is the one that you gave to us so that I would be blessed, who will bless the nations. And yet Abraham obeys. And you know the story. He goes up onto Mount Moriah. He starts to sacrifice Isaac just as the knife is about to come down. God says, stop. Replaces that child with a ram caught in the thicket. Says, Abraham, because you've trusted me, because you've not even withheld this only son, I surely will. He repeats and reemphasizes the promise. I surely will bless you. And Abraham receives even greater blessing because of his obedience to God. And Abraham is included in blessings he could not have experienced. In a depth of relationship with God, he could not have experienced had he disobeyed. God still could have used him. God still could have used Isaac and would have. But Abraham wouldn't have gotten to participate in the same way. And our author says here that even in times of uncertainty, the faith-filled person trusts God. I I don't like uncertainty. I don't know about you, but I like to know what is going to happen. My wife and I have three children. And uh, before we had each one, when she was pregnant, we had an opportunity to either wait to find out the gender after the baby was born or due to wonderful technology, we can find out now ahead of time, a few months. We can go ahead and paint the room, get everything ready. All three, we found out ahead of time. I don't like the uncertainty. When I was a kid, sometimes my brother, maybe you had older siblings that would do this, he would say something like this. He would say, open your mouth and close your eyes and I will give you a big surprise, right? Now, the first few times you do that, uh, you don't realize that if it was a good surprise, he would not have you close your eyes, right? If it was candy, he would just give it to you. If it's a cricket or a grasshopper, he will have you close your eyes, And over time I learned, no, I want to know I want the certainty of knowing what you're going to give me. If it's a good surprise, just surprise me with it now. Give it to me. Don't make me close my eyes. We don't like uncertainty. You guys, by the very nature of your stage in life, many of you are experiencing uncertainty. You don't know what your job is going to be when you graduate. You may not even know what your career is. You may not even know what your major is going to be or what classes you're going to take next fall. You don't know who you're going to marry, if you're going to marry. You don't know if you're going to have kids, how many you're going to have. You don't know where you're going to live. There's, there's all kinds of uncertainty in your life. And the question is, in the midst of that uncertainty, I can, do, I can do one of two things. I can either say, what I need to do is begin to control my life, take control of it, and I will plan everything down to the T so that I don't have to rely upon God. And so I'm going to make sure I know where everything is going every minute. And if things start to get out of my control, I'm going to panic. And there's nothing wrong with planning, but it's all in the attitude. Am I planning so that I don't have to trust God? Or am I planning with the understanding that at any minute, God can change my plans? And when he does, will I look and say, maybe this is a way for God to move me in a direction that I didn't anticipate, but but where I can be effective for his kingdom. When I was in college, about halfway through college, and I, I was trucking along, I had a plan I had uh, about two more years to go of school, and I I had a plan for my life that I was certain was going to formulate well. I was dating a girl, and I I liked her, and I thought, well, we'll probably date a couple more years, we'll get married. Uh, I was going to transfer to a school where I could study music and begin to go into music ministry, and I had this plan and was going to do all these things. And all of a sudden, one semester, that whole plan began to unravel began to experience resistance from friends and family about going to this other school and it seemed like it wasn't really going to work out like I thought it was. It wasn't going to be the experience I thought. This girl broke up with me. And all of a sudden, all of these plans I had, I looked at my future and it was just kind of this black box. So I stayed where I was and I prayed and I began to just try to piece together what is it that God wants? And I really didn't know. And and yet I look back on that time of, of uncertainty and fear I say, God used that time in my life to do two things. One, to move me, of course, to where he ultimately, I think, wanted me to be. I wouldn't be standing here. I wouldn't be married to the wonderful woman I am. I wouldn't have the kids I have had God not moved me in the direction he wanted me. But secondly, he used that time in my life to to develop trust, to help me to ask, is my purpose in life, is my focus, is my security, In the future I've established, or is it in the fact that even when that future gets rattled, even when I feel like one of those little ants in the ant farm, right? God's just done this. Even when I feel like that, he's in charge. He has a plan. So what do I do? I'm faithful to the things I know he's revealed. Share the gospel. Seek to make disciples. I pray, I read my Bible, and I obey him and I wait, just like Abraham did, to see what God's going to do. Faith-filled people trust God even in the midst of uncertainty. Thirdly, faith-filled people value eternal reward above earthly treasure. Value eternal reward above earthly treasure. Look at verses 23 to 28. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that he was a beautiful child. And they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to endure ill treatment with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, considering the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. By faith, he left Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is unseen." By faith, he kept the Passover and the sprinkling of the blood so that he who destroyed the firstborn would not touch them. By faith, they passed through the Red Sea as though they were passing through dry land. And the Egyptians, when they attempted it, were drowned. All right, he shifts now from Abraham to Moses. And he makes this point. Abraham trusted God. Even when things were uncertain, even when Isaac looked like it was, he, Isaac was going to die and Abraham said, God can raise him from the dead. But what did Moses do? Moses trusted God when Moses had the opportunity to receive a huge treasure as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. And what Moses did is he said, the treasure that God will give me later is greater than the treasure I would receive by staying in this palace Now. And so if you know the story of Moses, you know he identified with the Hebrew slaves who were his people. And he experienced scorn and rejection and shame from the Pharaoh and ultimately had to flee. And he took those people and he led them out into the wilderness in the midst of uncertainty and fear, not knowing when or how or if God would really lead them into the land he had promised, but he trusted. So God led him. And so Moses values the treasures of heaven more than he values the treasures of earth. It's a concept we see with those who know God well is that they defer gratification. And they recognize that what I can earn now, what I could be right now in the eyes of the world, what I could do right now in the eyes of the world, those things, I count them as loss for the sake of Christ and his kingdom. And instead I invest my money my time, my life in the gospel of Jesus Christ, even if I experience reproach and shame. It's that principle of deferred gratification. Some of us are better at it than others. I've often struggled with this concept. When I was a kid, my parents would usually give us an allowance on Sundays, uh, 10 or 15 bucks for the whole week. Uh, Mine was usually gone by Monday. Um, I would go And I would buy candy or baseball cards or whatever it is. And I always noticed after a couple of years that my older brother was just always flush with cash. He just sometimes literally would have hundreds of dollars. I'm not exaggerating when I say there were times that Dan loaned money to my parents. Dan always had money. Why? Because Dan would slowly save his money. And when he had tons of it, he would buy something really good. Stereo or television or whatever it might be. And I was sitting there with my handful of pixie sticks going, <laughs> what, uh, what did I miss, right? How in the world did I miss out? Well, it's because I had to have my gratification now. I had to spend it now. Dan knew how to put it off for something greater. That's what Hebrews is encouraging us to do in light of the example of Moses. Moses could have had a palace." Moses could have had the authority, perhaps, to rule along with the Pharaoh. He says, no, what I want is the eternal reward that comes from following God and believing his promises. You guys are are smart. You're bright, capable. You have a great future. You're going to have opportunities. You're going to have opportunities that are going to blow you away. You're going to have opportunities to be, many of you, wealthy, prestigious, powerful, famous, and none of those things are necessarily sinful. The question is, with the opportunities God gives me, how can I use those opportunities to invest back in the kingdom of God? For some, it may mean you have to turn down opportunities that seem great in order to pursue something that in the eyes of the world seems obscure. God may call you to go overseas and serve in obscurity rather than stay here be famous, prestigious, well-known, wealthy, comfortable. Or it may be you stay here. And yet even as you are working and even as God provides, instead of investing your resources in every three or four years, I got to get a bigger place, got to buy nicer clothes, got to keep up with those people over there, better car. You invest your money in the kingdom of heaven, in spreading the gospel. Sending it overseas to those who are sharing the gospel. Investing in in building up and encouraging the lives of those who otherwise can't hear it and can't obey it. Maybe you use your power and your influence to do the same thing. Wherever you are, God is calling you to find the treasures of heaven to be worth more, infinitely more, than the treasures of earth. That's what faith-filled people do. Even though here and now it seems like you're giving something up, Scripture exhorts and promises us you're not. Because what you get back is so much greater than what you give up. Right? Faith-filled people recognize that. Jim Elliott, famous missionary who was killed in South America back in the 1950s, famous quote, he says, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. Nothing you earn here is gonna go with you into heaven unless, unless, You invested in things that are eternal. You invested in men and women who will worship with you. Otherwise, you're going to go to the grave. Someone else will buy that house. Car will end up in the rust heap. Those clothes will get eaten by moths. Unless you invested in things that will last. Faithful people value eternal reward above earthly pleasure. And then finally, they know that God's story isn't done yet. Look at verses 32 to 40. What more shall I say? For time will fail me if I tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets who by faith conquered kingdoms, performed acts of righteousness, obtained promises, shut the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, from weakness were made strong, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection and others were tortured. Not accepting their release so that they might obtain a better resurrection. And others mockings and scourgings and yes, also chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were tempted. They were put to death with the sword. They went about in sheepskins and in goatskins being destitute, afflicted, ill-treated, men of whom the world was not worthy, wandering in deserts and mountains and caves and holes in the ground. And all these having gained approval through their faith did not receive what was promised because God had provided something better for us so that apart from us, they would not be made perfect. I love what he does. He goes through this history of the Old Testament and he goes through the judges, men like Barak and Jephthah and Samson, who uh, weren't perfect, but ultimately he says they had these great times of faith where they trusted God. And David, again, not perfect, but he trusts God for his future. And all of the prophets, men like Isaiah, who tradition says was sawn in half for his testimony of the Lord, and he goes on and on and on, and he lists all of these terrible things that happened to them because they were waiting for the promise. And as a result, they often came at odds with the world. And he says, uh, guess what? They did all of that and they didn't even receive the promise. You know why? Because God is waiting for you and me. Because God wants to fulfill the promise so completely and wants to include you and me, to give us an opportunity to fully participate in the rain that he's bringing. And so his story isn't done yet. We are designed to want resolution to a story. I can remember years ago, I went to a movie with uh, one of my roommates and he, um, this roommate, he was a great guy, but he, for whatever reason, he liked Disney animated movies. And so he, he which i 'm not saying there 's anything wrong i 'm just saying uh, he invited me to go to one, and uh, so we went and we saw this movie anastasia and uh, so i 'm sitting in a movie theater with another guy watching Anastasia and I know it was I was awkward, and uh, I was feeling a little weird about it, but we 're watching this movie, and uh, I kind of started to get into it i 'm not going to lie, I kind of started to like it and was was paying a lot of attention to it, and then something happened, and uh, the film broke about two-thirds of the way through the movie, and they couldn't fix it, and we didn't get to see the end of the movie, and uh, ordinarily, I would have thought, well, you know, it's just, it's just an anime deal. We had to go outside. We lined up. We got our money back, but all the way home, I thought, I got to rent this thing when it comes out <laughs> because I don't know how it ends. I have to see the end. We are designed... For the end of the story. You want to know why you want that prince to get the princess in the end. You want that dragon to be slain. You want that uh, hero to win. It's because that is the story of the Bible. That all of history is moving to this point where Jesus Christ comes and he claims his bride. In Revelation, what does he do? He destroys the dragon forever and ever. And Hebrews says, history is working toward that moment. And so the story isn't even over when you die. The story is over when Jesus returns, sets up his city, and God now says, I want you to be a part of it. I want you to invest in that city. I want you to have a place of honor in that city. The story isn't done. And so as long as the story goes on, we recognize that even though we may be at odds with the world now, even though we may forfeit treasure even though we may forfeit a particular view of home that we may have. God is faithful to fulfill his promises. And all of these men and women knew that and so they could go to their grave knowing the story is not done. God will resolve it. And for those who are faithful, he will resolve it in a way that allows us to reign alongside him, to receive greater rewards than we can even imagine. So let me ask you guys kind of as we close here are you arranging your life and living your life in such a way that you will make an everlasting impact? When you look behind you are you pouring into the lives of other men and women with your time with your money with your resources so that whenever the day comes that your life is over and you go to see Jesus you can look back and you say I've left a legacy that will last I would even encourage you to think through the course of your life. How can I slowly give away the resources that I have? How can I use my time at work? How can I use my time at home? How can I use my time with my family, my social time, to pour into the lives of men and women who will rejoice forever with us in heaven because we've been faithful with what God has called us to do? The reward is far more than worth the sacrifice. The question is, will we participate in what God's wanting to do and live with that kind of faith that perseveres? If you don't yet know Jesus Christ, i am going to tell you the only way you can even begin to participate that, in that is if you believe in Jesus as your Savior, that he died for your sins so that you don't have to be punished by God and he rose again so you can have eternal life. For those who do know him, the challenge is, will we then live in light of that faith and build into eternity. Our Father, we uh, praise you because throughout history and throughout time, uh, you have been uh, the rock on which we can stand. And we thank you that in Jesus Christ we know that we can have an eternity of rejoicing and praising with reward and joy and uh, all of the things we desire, Father, far beyond what we can experience in this life. Lord, we look at the men and women who came before us in your word and confess that uh, we feel small and insignificant compared to people like Abraham and Moses and David. And yet, God, we know that we are here because you want us to be a part of that story you're writing and you want us to have the opportunity to participate fully in your kingdom. And so we pray that we would arrange our priorities, our checkbooks, our planners, all of the things that are important to us, that we would arrange them around investing in the kingdom of God. In the name of Jesus Christ, be with us as we go out and allow us to invest in eternity. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. See you next week.